welcome to episode 77 of the Enneagram Journey with the Enneagram Godmother, Suzanne Stabile. My name is Joel, and today's guest is Enneagram 4, Meredith McDaniel. Meredith is the author of In Want and Plenty, Waking Up to God's Provision in a Land of Longing. And the forward is by the Enneagram Journey's own, Emily Freeman, who is also a forward. We're going to be talking about disappointment today, spontaneity versus surprise, uh, Meredith's husband is an anagram seven, so another four seven combo, much like episode seventy six. And of course, they're going to be talking about the book in Want and Plenty and some of its themes. We got back recently from Atlanta, and thank you so much, everyone who was there and everyone who hosted for what was an incredible weekend. Uh, shout out to Maddie and Hudson and Evan who waited in the line with their mom for her to get her book signed for what seemed like hours and was probably days to them. And I also got to see Sean King rescue Tommy Heaton from the clutches of the Reaper at dinner. So that was quite a show. I'm looking forward to some more great teaching and uh, hopefully some more stories coming up in Nashville on February 28th and 29th. And then Austin, March 13th and 14th. That's my one of my favorite cities in the world. I'm going to get another tattoo. Hopefully some of y'all can come join me. But definitely, if you want to dive into stances and what stance work means and looks like, you want to be there with Suzanne for Enneagram Stances, March 13th and 14th. And then if you're in the Dallas area, Saturday, March 21st, know your number with Billy Shuey. And finally, boot camp is two-thirds of the way sold out. So there's some tickets still left for June and then a handful left for August, but you don't want to wait a whole lot longer. And you definitely want to save that money by registering by the end of the month. No more plugs. It is time to get to the Enneagram journey with Meredith McDaniel and Suzanne Stabile. It's like, I, I read a lot and I love your book. So tell us about you and then tell us about why you wrote the book and then we'll get into some of that. Thank you so much for that kind comment. Well, I am a mom. I've got three young kids all in elementary. I don't feel like I'm an elementary mom. I liked the infant toddler stage. Welcome the, to my world. Me too. Okay. It's something, the silliness, the um, their little personalities coming out, I love, but it's it wears me out a little bit. So there's that. And then I'm always shifting into different roles. Um, I go into counseling. So I have my own private practice called Milk and Honey in North Carolina. And then I'm changing my clothes back into my sweats to pick up my kids in the car line, trying to cram a book and a little bit of reading in um, before they get in the car. And it's crazy. And um, yeah. And then I love sitting with people and talking. Like mm -hmm. I could sit and us do this all day long. Um, I'm an introvert, so I need to have my downtime. I mm -hmm. came on a trip down here to Texas by myself intentionally. <laughs> oh, yeah. Uh, just to have some white space and some downtime to be able to really think and process life and just hunt for some beauty while I'm down here and kind of listen and pay attention to what God's stirring in my heart mm -hmm. um, before some some big, busy seasons are coming ahead. So, um, yeah, that's me in a nutshell. And you're married to a seven. I am married to a seven. He's in high school ministry, and we started out doing that together, and I learned really quickly that it was exhausting to mm -hmm. me. Again, I could sit and do the one-on-one -on -one conversation and deeper, um, 
you know, go deeper with people, but the thought of, you know, being high energy and earning the right in that way, um, quickly became something that I realized was not my gift set. Mm -hmm. So that's been an interesting uh, point of tension for us to figure out how do we do ministry and do life and lean into our gifts, uh, together, um, but also in our own unique ways. Boy, there's a lot there that I'd love to talk about. Uh, back to elementary school, as a, <laughs> as a four mom, I'm a two, so it would seem like we would both be really good with elementary age children. Hmm. And you said, I struggle a little bit with the silliness or something like that. And that's such a four thing to say. Yeah. And what I struggled with was the fact that there are so many expectations for elementary school moms mm. to be room mothers and do that stuff. I'm not good at any of that. Same. I'm so with you. it was like I felt like a failure all the time mm. at the school. Mm -hmm. Like I, I was kind of embarrassed because it would be, we didn't see you at parent teacher party or, right. you know, and I. I just always felt a little bit guilty about not being right for that age. Yeah. But I was great through kindergarten, and I kicked back in about seventh grade, and yeah. it all all worked for me. So, I'm so curious about that, though, because with you being a two, if they ask you to be a room mom, how did you not say yes every time? Well, I'm a pastor's <laughs> wife, right? So right. there's so much to say yes to okay. that I ultimately had to find a few things that I right. felt like. I could say no to. So, and, and even when the kids were in high school, uh, all the kids, the three older kids were all involved in athletics and the youngest one in music. And one place where we were appointed as in the Methodist church, you're only appointed for a year at a time. Mm -hmm. So there was a period where we moved five times in eight years. Wow. And then the last 25 years, that's not true. But during that time, we were in a high school situation where the girls were playing basketball and the moms decorated the bus for every game. That's so not my thing. <laughs> like, I, no, I don't want to be on a bus with other moms. I don't want to decorate because I'm not crafty. Yeah. Like I didn't want to do any of that. Yeah. And it's interesting to me how much guilt comes from me as a two. Mm. I wonder if it does for you as a four. And there being a group of people to join that you're supposed to be a part of and you're supposed to want to, mm -hmm. but you don't. There's now groups for fathers as well. You know, uh, room, I think it's called like room dads now also. Mm -hmm. uh, and then the time that I do have, I'm there as the participating parent, but not as a volunteer. Right. Me too. That's how I and, was. And I have zero guilt about it. Of course. Yeah. <laughs> And, but y'all do? Well, I don't know. We don't know if Meredith does yet. Well, I feel like... Three different stances today here. We might be. Yeah. I feel like I am trying to maximize my work efforts during the school day for them. Yeah. yeah. So that I can, and this is a struggle, but that I can be more present in the afternoons when they're there and kind sure. of turn everything off in the afternoon. Um, so to give up any of that time, <laughs> which is a little bit of my self-preservation going out. Um, I feel like I don't have the capacity to go and be drained and the bright light with all the people and all the movement and, you know, all yeah. the stimulation. Um, because and then as the an afternoon. As an introvert yes. also, like I don't want to be around mm -hmm. other fathers that I'm not friends with. Right. Uh, I'm an extrovert and 
that still wasn't the place for me to spend energy Mm -hmm. and get energy back. That makes me feel better hearing that from an extrovert, honestly. Yeah. I, I think, um, I think there are Enneagram numbers who are really good at that. Mm -hmm. And I think they're really good at working together as a group, men and women. And they're really good at doing things like, uh, participating in school things as a volunteer for the children that I like, they're really good at that. And I would propose that one of the numbers that's especially good at that is sixes. Mm. And, um, I think it's because they focus on community most of the time. So I sometimes wonder if those of us who are more aggressive, even if we're introverts, I wonder if we take other people's thing that they would have loved to do, but they didn't step up and be loud enough to be heard or Mm -hmm. seen, right? Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I I just know it's not mine to do, and I don't know how much you've heard me talk, but a big thing for me in life is to answer the question every day, what is mine to do today? Yes, that's so freeing. And I think my pastor actually, um, he... Is, he says such simple statements, but one of which is that we need to um, step back so that others can serve yeah. and use their gifts. And that creates such a space for people to do things that they might not otherwise have done if other people are stepping right in front of them. Right. So I'm with you. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And I think we all have different spiritual gifts that serve us well in church ministry, too. Yeah. And I'd love to hear more about you guys trying to figure out as a couple how to do ministry together, but be yourselves, because that's a journey that Joe and I um, have been on for a long, long time, and it doesn't actually get better. Mm. So <sighs> I started Exciting. my day today mm-hmm. uh, crying mm. with Joe because he's the preacher, and I've been asked to preach three times in the last six months. Mm. And two invitations I hadn't answered yet. And uh, I said, you know, I don't want to, I don't want to get in your thing. Like that's what you do. Right. And I don't want to, I don't, I don't want to do that. At our age, we're starting to um, try to make room for younger people in ministry by moving over. And some of those moves then cause confusion about what we're each going to do. Mm. It's it's hard to continue to navigate that. And as I'm crying this morning and talking to Joe about it, what is mine to do with what are my gifts for doing it became the question. And I said, I'm not good at preaching, and you are, and why would I do that? And he just very calmly said, they're not asking you to preach. They're asking you to be an Enneagram expert and bring your gifts to what they're doing. Mm. And he said, I couldn't do that if they invited me to. So that's the thing. Yeah. That's just a piece of our heart to you guys as mm-hmm. you move forward, because mm-hmm. I would have never thought of it that way. Yeah. It's such good wisdom. And I, I want to learn more from you guys about that because, and I appreciate you sharing about your tears. Um 
because that's real. You know, it's, it's not like you guys have it all, all figured out. Nope. It's this lifelong process and journey. And I think us in our mid thirties, um, as my career is sort of shifting and changing and growing in different ways and different mediums, um, you know, it's been like birthing pains for us. You know, we both started in ministry together and on the same page, both on staff. Then I started volunteer leading. Then we started having babies. And, uh, you know, my heart started being more drawn to counseling and to writing and music. And um, those are quiet spaces. Yeah. And they require a lot of kind of downtime to just think and process. Mm-hmm. And when it's filled with kind of like the energy we were talking about before, when it is filled with a lot of people and a lot of noise, um, even though those are really good things that I do enjoy being a part of with limits and boundaries around them, um, it's hard for us to know how to overlap. And that's a word that we have really been coming back to a lot. How can we overlap? How can we live out of our own uh, giftings, like you said, um, and be challenged? Like I hear you saying somebody's asked you to preach and that's not your familiar territory, but maybe you're supposed to do it and say yes to one or two or all three of the offerings. Um, but you have to figure out how to do it in your own way. And I think that is definitely what we're trying to figure out um, right now in life. You know, what does this look like with young kids right. and tag your it? But we need to be in the same space at the same time, serving alongside of each other, too, not just going in separate directions right. all the time. Right. Because that does bring tears for me, at least, and I think frustration for him. And he gave me permission to talk about whatever today. So here so we, we go. are. Here we go. Yeah. <laughs> I usually do it without permission. So tell him he's, y'all are ahead of us. There you go. I think, um, <laughs> One thing I want to say before we get too far away from being a youth pastor is that I, when I work with youth pastors, I say, without exception, you are probably the most important person in a f- high school mm-hmm. fours life. Wow. Fours in high school have to find a place they trust with a person they trust. And I, I, there's just not anybody who's more important. That doesn't mean that the best person for that is a four, though. I can sure see how it, how you would be drawn to that. And then how it would be, yeah, this is not, this is not it for me. Yeah. Did, did you find that as a four in high school? I did. I, you know, I was a, I had a big, uh, a big part of my life was in my youth group, but then also even shifting more into high school, young life, which is what we do, right. um, became a, a huge part of my life. And I think that's why it was a no brainer for me that I would go on staff and I would be a volunteer leader, like to give back to this ministry that had, that I had received from. Yep. Um, and then it became disorienting when I really got into that role. Um, and there was a lot of guilt and like we talked about mm-hmm. earlier, guilt and grief involved in that shift in my calling. I'm absolutely sure that when I daily ask the question, what is mine to do, that there there is a difference in what I have the gifts to do, what I might be inclined to do, mm-hmm. and what I'm called to do. And Joe's just steady, steady on, uh, I think we need to talk about that a little more. I'm not sure we've discerned that correctly, yeah. and I'm grateful and frustrated with all that at, at the exact same time. Yeah, it's, a, it's an ongoing conversation in our house. How can we be present with each other? How can we support each other? Um, and know that the other person values the other person's work and ministry. 
Yeah, and one certainly seems more important than the other <laughs> at times. It's fascinating. And that can't be the way you discern what you're going to do either right. by who seems to be the most important. That's a, we shouldn't even talk about that. <laughs> well, I want to talk about just a small amount. Okay, great. We, we can. Uh, in our group yesterday, I was sharing how I struggle with being future-oriented. Yep. And attached to the results and how that leads to a lot of, uh, I miss a lot of things in the day to day. My wife is a therapist. We have kids. Mm -hmm. I have a job and being too far focused ahead. Mm -hmm. I, over the past couple of weeks have missed so many opportunities with my family. Mm -hmm. And so we were talking about that. And then I love that line you said a second ago about, uh, finding where to overlap. Yeah. Because I'm so supportive of her work. She <laughs> is of mine. And we both want to be great parents. I just wanted, I didn't want us to get past that hard part of managing what is most important in the moment mm -hmm. as a couple. I think that's really hard. It's really, really hard. And I, I think it's hard to set the table to manage what's most important in the moment. So, Joe and I are very unique. He left the priesthood at 40. We married. He adopted my three kids. We had a fourth. And he came from a church with 2,000 families in the Catholic Church. And we came into the United Methodist Church. And he said to the people that we answered to, I never thought I would be married. And I never thought I would be a parent. And I... I don't want an appointment that gives me no space for those two things. And as the years went by and the people in the United Methodist Church found out how talented he was, he turned down several opportunities for advancement as a clergy person to, in those years, be a husband and a father. And he says at 72... He doesn't regret one day of it. That's hard to turn as a in your 30s. So the reverend at that point was in his late 40s, That's right. early 50s. And I'm not saying, and it's the reverend. Yeah. So mid, I'm not saying it's easier, but it feels like it would be easier. So Whitney, she just kept getting promoted and promoted and promoted at her job. She was a therapist, but they gave her a promotion on the administrative side. And the more she got promoted kind of the better it was financially for us. Sure. And however, she got to see less and less patients and fell out of love with her work. And I'm in a good spot where I can't be promoted. So <laughs> thanks. <laughs> so, so I won't be promoted for hopefully 50 years. There you go. Good cover. And people that aren't in the helping professions, how do you turn down especially when it's your career promotions. Yes, and I certainly didn't mean to say it was easy. What I meant... You didn't say it was easy. I just wanted to really at home, I think, how hard it is. I think it's really hard, and I don't think it's everybody's journey. It was ours. Sure. And I think the one of the biggest mistakes we make is, well, here's what we did, and you should do it too, as opposed to, here's what we did, period. Here's what we did. And we live in a, here's what I did. You should 
do it to culture. Yes, we do. And I'm opposed to that. Which um, does not leave a lot of room for discernment. I mean, I love that you brought that into the picture because we can bring our wisdom to the table, um, any of us, at any season or stage of life. But if we don't leave room for discernment for the own per- the person sitting in front of us to right. really hear what they're supposed to do. Um, and that's hard in a marriage. You know, I was just thinking while both of you were talking, you know, I could be hearing one thing and Ben could be hearing something else. Right. And then we're, we have to make a, a decision as a family. Yep. Like what's the, like I have a big decision looming right now. Actually, I have to decide about tomorrow. And, you know, I don't know what's best. I'm trying to hear from the Lord today. And, um, and, but I also want Ben to weigh in on that and he doesn't want to hold me back. Right. But I want to be wise for our family right. and do what is best all around for all of us. Um, that's going to love other people well and the best. I just think it's so hard. I think it's so, so hard. And I think it's everybody's journey. And I think the offering I would have for a seven and a four and trying to discern well is that you've got a really good shot at it because you you have ground that you share, but you're so different. And I think being so different is a good thing mm-hmm. because whatever decisions you make will be fuller. Yes. And I'm married to a nine. And so to get him to say what he wants is really hard to. And I, I, our old people to young people advice is you can always change your mind. Yeah. You can say yes to this thing, and if you get into it and think, nope, this is not it, you can always change your mind. And that when people outside of me, when it involves money and contracts and all that, it's just a thing. But with the writing uh, advances that I've received, I held them until I was in far enough to know that I had discerned right and correctly. It's so smart. Oh, tucking that away for later. Because then I could say, oh, man, mm-hmm. I misdiscerned this, and here you go. Here's here's the check right back. I, I wish I had done that with student loans. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, That's there's good. that in there. <laughs> well, you, you just talked about the difference between sevens and fours. Yeah. We have received a lot of questions recently asking about that difference. Can you talk about it between you and your husband? Sure. Well, I mean, you know, just basic definitions of a four versus a seven, like I can wallow in all the feels and all the pain all day long. And I love how you recently said that, that we don't need to be rescued from it, that it's melancholy. It's not sadness. I mean, that really hit home with me. Um, and then for sevens, and I don't want to give a bad rap and so I'll give a disclaimer, but you know, I don't think that the default is to want, and you can correct me, Joel. I don't think that the default is to want to avoid pain necessarily. I think that, you know, you do that, but it's not that you're scared of going there at some point. So at least for Ben, um, he can hang out with me in it some, but he reaches his limit real quick and a lot faster than me. So he wants to move out of that pain um, and the overthinking and analysis much quicker than me, but I need to be able to do that. So I've had to find other outlets for his sake, really, you know, to, to have a little bit of a filter so that he doesn't feel like I'm just inundating him and overwhelming him with all of my ponderings and thoughts. I've been thinking a lot about overing, over worrying, hmm. over talking, overthinking, overanalyzing, overspending, 
just all of that overing. And I wonder how this resonates with you, particularly since you're married to a seven. I kind of am coming to the conclusion that an antidote for overthinking and overanalyzing is imagination. And that's what sevens offer. There are other numbers that offer that too. But sevens somehow can take a a little piece of what you're over-processing and use that to imagine something that gets you to a different place in a relationship. And it's bigger than what if. It's a bigger thing than what if we did this. It's problem-solving, respectfully, offering change in a way of thinking or in your way of thinking with imagination of what could be. Well, I think, and tell me if this resonates with you in year seven, the aspect of paradox, of the best part of you is the worst part of you. I just said how being future-oriented and attached to the results Mm -hmm. were setting me back in my personal life. However, knowing what the goal and the finish line is Mm -hmm. and thinking it it through is what you're talking about, how it can be helpful for people who are overthinking and stuck. I think orientation at times is a big deal. Hmm. So um, in this room right now, I'm oriented to the present moment, and Meredith, you're oriented to the past, and Joel's tethered to the future. So that's a real mix mm-hmm. in terms of how do you discern, yeah. what do you base discernment on, and how in the world are two people at the opposite end going to figure out what they're going to do. And the thing that I heard both of you talk about indirectly is your concern about what's happening right now, about not missing something, about being present for the children in the afternoons, about all of that. And it's fascinating to me that what you're both looking for is where I live in terms of what's happening right now. But it's problematic too. So, All to say, I think orientation to time when it's something that we're mindful of is a part of the map for us of where we're supposed to go. You know what? I love that you said when it's respect. Yeah. Yep. Because when I've been trying to make this decision, even about coming to Texas, you know, these kind of big commitments that I've had in regards to the book lately, um, Ben has been so great at going ahead and looking into the future for me. And I've needed that because I am freaking out about the past or even a little bit of the present. Like, well, this is how I feel now. Mm -hmm. He's like, well, in six months, you're not going to feel that way. And I need that voice. Um, But the way he says it and, you know, the voice he uses, the tone, um, if it's it's trying to be a quick fix and I feel like he's rushing me through it. um, So it's that respect piece that makes such a difference, I think, for us if it ends up being a positive joint discerning versus a, okay, well, we're just going to divide and do this on our own and be sassy about it. Well, I'm going to use that as a segue to talk about in want and plenty. 
So that's the title of your book, and I love it so much. And the reason, one of the reasons I love it so much is because I find that there is a lot of talk and a lot of writing about one or the other, but not both. Amen. And the whole journey is, I believe, God's presence in my life in want and in plenty. And if if I if I can't find that in somebody's teaching or somebody's offering, I really struggle. Mm-hmm. Because my life story is want and plenty and God being there in all of it. And we can hold both at the same time. We not only can we, we have to, we do. We don't, we don't have a choice. I'm so glad it resonates with you. I feel like, um, I feel like it's a very four title, but it's also a human title. When I was writing it, I, I really did start to think about how can I write this? Not just for people that see the world. Like I do. How can it, how can it resonate with, um, every number? And I'm curious, actually, maybe we could talk a little bit about your writing process. Um, I know you're writing specifically about the Enneagram, at least so far. So you are already thinking about all those numbers. But when you meet with other authors, you know, we are anything we write and we put into print, it's coming through our own, our own lens and our own backstory. And so to bring Ben back into the conversation, you know, when he read little bits and pieces, it was hard for him to resonate. And there was a part where I had to say like, okay, well, you might not be my reader. But, and this is the beautiful part we were talking about a second ago, um, the thing that he did bring to the table for me was he said, you've got to trickle some hope throughout, you know, you've got to trickle it through Mm -hmm. or you're Mm going to lose your people. And, um, that has made the book what it, what it is because there's, there's the element of both the want and plenty, um, even being reflected out of our numbers, um, from the Enneagram. So, but that's been hard too kind of navigate. Yeah, it is hard. And I think um, I'm changing my process. I just signed a contract for a new book and I'm working on that. And I, my process for the first two was I literally hung a picture of somebody of every Enneagram number above my desk and knew that I was always writing to them. This time though, I'm going to do it a little bit different. I'm going to, I'm going to try writing to stances, to my idea and understanding of stances instead of individual numbers because I'm going much deeper with this book. And I think that'll kind of work for me. As a two, if if there's not something that I'm aware of that represents who I'm writing to, Mm -hmm. I can't do it. I don't, like I just sit there. I don't have anything to say. Yeah. And I think, um, non-dualistic thinking has to be where we're all headed if we're going to ever come back together and cohere. So I think good writing is non-dualistic. And that's one of the reasons I love your book. Thank you. And I, I, you can tell Ben from me that just when I needed a little hope, you knew right where to put it in. Mm. And I think that's tricky because Anything written just from Joel's perspective or Ben's is a seven mm-hmm. is going to eliminate folks. And anything written 
just from your perspective as a four is going to do the same thing. It is. And I, I'm hoping that the ability to know the Enneagram as authors means that we will write to everybody and then conversation can happen yes. around a topic that's not the Enneagram, which has to begin to happen in Enneagram circles. You know, it, surely everybody gets tired of talking about themselves after a while. Yeah. Well, there's so much variety in, in God's creation, right? And that's what keeps this life feeling so vibrant. And um, I think you posted a video recently of um, the song with everybody at the table. And it, it was such a beautiful picture to me. And I think that's, that's what it's going to be like, you know, one day when we're not here on earth, we're going to get to see um, what it looks like to hold, uh, it won't be attention then, but here on earth, it's attention yeah, it for is. us all to come to the table and agree to disagree and hold that space for each other. Um, and it's not something that we're very well versed in or know how to practice doing. Um, so my heartbeat, I think with this book was that anybody would be able to pick it up and take something from it as a whole, but also, you know, if, if they're just flipping through, um, that they would be able to say, wow, I can, I can resonate with that. Uh, I don't know about this, you know, and, and I don't know about you, but when I finish writing a book six months later, when I'm further out from it, there's things I would go back and change in here. Absolutely. Right. I mean, I'm a constant, if I'm a constantly growing, That's transforming right. person, right. then I see the world differently today than I did six months ago. So I think there's got to be room for grace for that too, um, from a reader. And I think we have to have the courage to change it in the next book. Mm-hmm. And there are going to be people who will pick up on that and say, ah, oh, mm-hmm. you were wrong. And the answer is no, I was just at a different place on the journey. And maybe I'm never right. Maybe. Can and I maybe say that? that's not the question. <laughs> maybe the question isn't right and wrong. It's uh, this is the journey there we from go. my perspective. I like that. All right. I have a few questions for you. And then I want to talk about some specific things in the book. Okay. Uh, we asked you if there was anything specifically that you did not want to talk about. And you said that didn't apply, which I. Um, I think that's pretty great. <laughs> and then uh, here, here's one of the things that you kind of wanted to talk about. The lifelong work of becoming more of who God made you to be, not a quick fix formula, but a process of learning of transformation. And I love that because I look for every opportunity I find to say, you cannot change what you can't name. Mm-hmm. And unfortunately... It takes longer, I believe, to name what you need to change. I think it takes longer to set the table for transformation than the actual work does. It's like we keep holding back on defending what we know we need to change. Mm -hmm. And I think it's because we're afraid we can't do it. Yes. Is that what you think? It is. And I think it's almost like I love, I just started a garden this year and, you know, all the weeds come so fast with all the rain and um, they start to choke out all of the beauty that is is springing up. Right. And uh, if I can get in there and get the weeds out, then we get the, the flowers just start to explode again. And, you know, people walk by and they're like, whoa, those flowers, they're beautiful. But as soon as the weeds start to take over, it it clouds the whole picture. It blurs the whole picture. And I think until we're willing 
not in our own strength, because there's no way to do that in your own strength, to look back so that we can look Mm -hmm. at the present and look ahead, like I talk about in the book, it's not going to be the fullness and the abundant life that we were made to live. No, it isn't. And, and when we're not living in that fullness essence, Mm -hmm. who we were before Mm -hmm. personality started to take over, Mm -hmm. uh, is, is not recognizable. Mm -hmm. It's present, I think, Mm -hmm. but not recognizable. All right. I want to, I want to talk about this piece from the book. You talk about finding a safe place to process. And I, I was aware that what preceded that was you laid out that there's going to be failure. And it's interesting to me that your juxtaposition was failure and then a safe place to process. Because culturally, it would be written, if we have a safe place to process, we can avoid failure. Mm. And you flipped that intentionally, I feel sure. Mm -hmm. We talk about that for a little bit, and then I have a couple of questions. Sure. Well, I think I use the analogy of like, if you, if you're feeling really dirty and like, let's say you've been outside and there's just mud all over you. I think about my kids running on the trampoline and then coming back in the house. Um, you wouldn't give them like white towels to clean everything off and then go take a shower. So like all the mess and all the dirtiness, like we tend in our culture to want to hide that Mm -hmm. and keep it behind closed doors. Um, and, and then, you know, at some point we kind of reached the place where we're like, okay, I got to get some help. I got to find a safe place to process. Um, but what if we were able to take that messiness and the failure, if you will, and actually talk about it with the people in our life in a way that, um, is vulnerable and real that also allows them to share. Right. And then the safe, the safe place is created from that. You know, everything kind of stems out of that space. Is that kind of the question that you're asking? Yeah, and Tell I, me I, more. I want to go with that a little further to say that I, I have never trusted pastors mm-hmm. who, when you say, how are things going, they say, oh, everything at my church is great. Right. I don't believe that ever. Mm-hmm. But, or, I'm sorry you're having trouble with a, an antagonist in your church. I've never experienced that. There isn't a church that doesn't have an antagonist. I don't believe that. No. So what I've learned to listen for that intrigues me is when people say, it's a struggle and here's what I'm learning. Yeah. Not here's what I figured out, here's how I succeeded, here's what I know, but here's what I'm learning. Yeah. So Richard Rohr is a great teacher of mine, mm-hmm. uh, ongoing. And one of the things Richard says is, uh, success has nothing, this is going to be very poignant for you, <laughs> success has nothing to teach you after the age of 35. Mm. So in a culture that's always looking for more success, for you to write that you you say, I entered a season where I willingly chose to delve beneath the surface and dig deep, and then here was the key word, slowly. I grew tired of pretending like I was always happy and that life with Jesus was smooth sailing. This was a lie I'd been convincing myself of for way too long, and I wanted some relief fast. And the thing that I'm so mindful of is the wisdom of, I wanted relief fast, but I chose to dig deep slowly. Mm -hmm. 
we don't want to do things slowly. Nothing. Not anything. <laughs> well, I was going to say. <laughs> Nobody wants to do that. The note that I wrote, wrote down is saying everything is great. It's just a conversation ender. Yeah. Like everything. That's good. That it's good. sure not a starter. Yeah. <laughs> everything's, everything's great. All right. Well. See you later. Yeah. Glad it's Big good for time. you. Now yeah. I feel like junk. <laughs> and, and, you know, we we're coming off the, we're recording this right now, coming off the heels of the trauma and adoption series where we talked about changes in people's behavior mm-hmm. that seem, that appear healthy and wonderful, but probably aren't. And saying everything is great and putting a smile on sounds awesome. And, you know, they said they're doing great, man, that they're probably not. I'd be curious how often when someone says everything's great, just red flag. Yeah. Right there. It's a bandaid. Yeah. Or an illusion with a bandaid attached. Or an I'm not going to tell you. Exactly. That's what, again, it's an ender. Yeah. Even when things are good for me. I tell you what's good. Hey, how are things? I mean, this Jolie's killing it here. Jace is doing great with this. Whitney and I are happy. Well, you know, and then tuck in some some bad. Yeah. Well, and Joel, I'm the opposite. So I start on the. Well, you know, I've got this going on. And, you know, I go. I just go there, and then somebody's like, "Give me something good, please." You know, it, like like Ben says, you need to sprinkle some hope. In yeah, there. I got to sprinkle that hope, which I do because there <laughs> is. It's there. There, the plenty is everywhere, but the want is there too. And so, when we have the ache and the longing here in this broken world, um, I think it does us a great um, gift to be able to. To be willing, like I said earlier, not in our own strength, to delve in slowly and deeply uh, with people. And, you know, we have to start with ourselves um, before we can do that with other people. And I started going to counseling in college. I talk about this in the book, too. Um, and the gift that that was for me to realize, again, I don't have to have this smile on my face. I love to smile, but I don't have to fake it. Um, I, I really used to believe that in order for other people to want to have anything to do with God, that I had to pretend like I had it all together. And, um, you know, I'm from the South and we do that really well in yeah, the we South. Do. <laughs> um, but there's something behind that. We all have our stuff. We all have the things that are, um, unsettled in our lives. And if we can choose to, um, enter into that conversation first with ourselves and with God, and then with others, and we don't have to go, you know, I'm not suggesting that we go tell the whole world all of our stuff. I think that would be detrimental and maybe even inappropriate. Um, however, you know, we have people that have been placed in our life uh, for a reason. And I, I take it back to when I was leading a Young Life cabin in college and I sat on the floor with all these high school girls. They were all looking up at me. They had me up on this pedestal because right. I'm in college and they're in high school. And it was like, you know, we're supposed to be talking and they are... Um, just looking at me like they're not going to say a word. And mm-hmm. as soon as I started saying some stuff in my life that I struggled with, it was like, oh my gosh, right. unleashing everything that was going on in their heart. And it changed the whole course of our conversation for the whole week. And some of those girls I'm going to get to see Sunday night at my book release party, and I've known them for 20 years. And we've been doing this ongoing conversation of delving deep and slowly walking through our stuff for that long. And I, I think we'll continue to do that. Sure. So. In today's fast-paced world that is all about success in our culture, 
in relationships. Like that one worked really well from a counselor perspective, but in our day to day relationships, relationships with the people that we know and love, how do we set the table for others to know it's okay to slowly dig deep? Mm -hmm. How do we say, take your time, think about it. I think a piece of this we have to watch for is giving people permission to be not okay without me needing to fix it. And that's where I get in trouble. Mm-hmm. Like I, I as a two have to learn when people are struggling, if they're honest with me about that, to not insert myself into that as the helper even with my adult children or my grandchildren or Joe, I have to be able to say, looks like things are not okay. Anything I can do? And then let the answer be not only no, there's nothing you can do, but the understanding of, and you don't need to ask me any more questions. That's hard for me. Is that hard for the two of you? So if somebody does own up and say, yeah, not doing great. Are y'all able to leave that alone? Because man, everything in me wants to just insert myself right into that and believe that I can just be so helpful and you'll be so thankful and you will love me more. Well, the phrase that really stuck out to me in that is it's okay. Well, maybe I just said it in my head. It's okay to not be okay. So like when somebody tells me they're not okay, I'm okay with it. Like I, I, I think that's why I resonated so much with you saying that I don't need to be rescued from my sadness or melancholy. I think that's true of all of us. It's okay to sit in it. And I think that gives me permission to not feel like I have to fix instantly that, that I'm trusting that somehow they're going to be able to sort through and it might not be my role to help them do that. It might be if they ask, but if, if they, they don't want it. I'm not going to insert myself and push myself into that because I think it could be more detrimental than helpful. But I have I have to feel it out and I have to really know the person sitting in front of me to know what my next move should be. This inserting thing is new language for me. Just so everybody knows I hate it hmm. because it describes me so well, I can hardly bear to know it. Mm-hmm. And I heard it about an athlete and Joel, forgive me for not knowing <laughs> who it is because I it's some big person that you would just know their name right away. I feel like such a failure as a <laughs> mother of children who adore sports. But they said about this guy who's a football player, he's such a great guy. He's always looking for a place to insert himself where he can be helpful. And I thought, that is me through and through. And it's probably inappropriate at least three-fourths of the time. I sometimes don't want whatever I'm struggling with to be fixed right now. Aggressive numbers are fixers. So if I tell you in real time, because you're oriented to the future and the thing that we're going to do next that's going to be in your head so great... If I tell you Why now... Why did you throw the, uh, in your head, it's going to be so great. It's going to be so great. <laughs> well, oh. uh, we'll leave that for right now. And But the thing is, 
I, I don't want to be, I don't want you to fix it right now. I want somebody for language uh, that I really like is wallow. And I don't use that disrespectfully. Mm-hmm. I want somebody who's going to wallow here with me in how, what a big struggle this is and how complicated it is. And so I think one of the gifts of really good therapists who do talk therapy is to know when to solve mm-hmm. and when to listen. And I think aggressive numbers, when we, other numbers share pain with them, love us by wanting to fix. Yeah. And being present is just hard. Yeah. I wanted to circle back something real quick you said, Suzanne. So okay. you said three-fourths of the time you feel like you probably should not insert yourself. Uh-huh. But And this is that gift in Thorn, right? Like a fourth of the time, maybe more than that, we need you to insert yourself. Because I'm thinking about the twos in my life that are such hands and feet for me right now. And I like love them with all of my heart because I need them to tell me and be proactive and be mm-hmm. thinking about, okay, here's what's going to happen. I, I want to help you and I need to let them help me. Um, and that might not be a, a forceful inserting. Um, it could be, and I don't respond well to that, but if it is a kind, respectful, I really genuinely want to help you in this, then I please yeah, bring, bring it, it on and right. I need it. It's interesting because um, I do not a lot of teaching, but some amount around the book of Jonah and in want and plenty is around the book of Exodus. Mm -hmm. And those are two interesting books to consider for storytellers like you and me. The way I fell in love with Jonah is a woman who I get an email from every three or four years sent me one and said, here's four mantras I think you should teach on them. They are. Show up, pay attention, tell the truth, and don't get attached to the results. And I thought, well, I'd love to do that because I respect and love her, but I can't, I, I don't know what to do that with. And then I read the book of Jonah, and Jonah shows up and pays attention and tells the truth and struggles because he gets attached to the results, right? And I think that this whole thing of offering help, inserting ourselves to be loving and supportive and helpful for aggressive numbers, fixing, I think all of that is in the showing up and paying attention and telling the truth. And the place where I inappropriately insert myself, if I'm careful and I watch myself, I'm attached to the results from the get-go. Yeah. You have an agenda. Absolutely. And when I have an agenda, then I'm not present to what's really happening. To any seven listening, immediately make yourself more open to... To be more approachable when people are struggling, not strangers for the record, but (laughs) (laughs) people that are wives, husbands, family members, close friends, because I don't want that. And I can see how my past behavior would lend to Joel's not going to, 
the gifts Joel has is not what I want right now. And that's fine. But I also want to be in the loop and don't want the, the fake side of you. I want people to be happy. And if you're not happy, don't fake being happy. Sure. Sure. But you've grown to that. Like, right? You Sevens grow into the, I want the real you. You don't have to bring the happy you. But what I want to put on the table, and then we, Meredith, I want to hear what you're thinking and about Ben, is that part of the problem is on all of us who are not sevens because we want the happy you except when we don't. And that must be very confusing for you as a seven to think, okay, man, I, I love this guy. He's been my friend since I was a kid, and I want to help, and I've got a great solution, and then we can go on. And it's like he wants that 90% of the time, and 10% of the time he doesn't want Happy Joel. He wants you to wallow around with him, and that's not your gift. I've learned I'm, I'm, I'm so sorry. That Man, that's tough. Lots of those phrases. The thing for me is the time limit on that. That's right. <laughs> yes. That's right. There comes that time. That's again. right. Is that it is. It is. He, you know, again, he's always thinking ahead and into the future and and I'm right here. And so I don't know why, but I feel like this agenda word really is getting at the heart of a lot of this dynamic because when I walked into this room, I knew that I had no idea what directions we were going to go. I mean, we're kind of bouncing off Enneagram, bouncing off the book. But I I wanted to come in with open hands of um Whatever's going to unfold in here is going to unfold, and I'm going to learn what I need to learn, and y'all are going to learn what you need to learn, and then we're going to all leave changed from this sacred space. And I feel like, and correct me again if I'm wrong, but I feel like at least with my interactions with Ben, he goes into a room and he knows how it's going to go. That's right. In his head. That's right. He, he has an agenda. It's not a bad agenda. It's a good agenda. Like, we want this to be a good podcast recording. We want this to be a good conversation. Um, he already sees the outcome. And a lot of times that's that imagination piece I think you're talking about. Yeah. That's helpful because we do. We want to get to that good, happy place where we're all in a good, I don't know, harmony, I guess. Um, but it doesn't always go that way. And, you know, we're all going to bring different things to the conversation and to the table that could redirect um, how we're affected, how we're transformed, how we're changed. And we have to be open to that because if we're not, we're not going to get to, again, experience the fullness and the essence and the abundance of um, what our creator has for us in the space. I like spontaneity. I don't like surprise. Mm. So, Say more. So like Ben, well, like Ben, coming into the room, you teach, Suzanne, about how sevens love spontaneity. Mm-hmm. Yeah, true. And I'm curious, I don't like, does Ben like surprise? Because it, there is an agenda. You're right. There, this is a really good distinction. Yeah. I don't think he does. Spontaneity he wants and surprise to be in the know. are not the same. He wants yeah. to be part of the spontaneity. Mm-hmm. He wants it, to bring yes. the spontaneity. Yes. Don't. Yes. Oh, my <laughs> gosh. Me, too. I like Ben. <laughs> I do, too. Y'all be good friends. <laughs> I want to. There's a couple more things in the book I really want to talk about. So I want to put a wrap on this, if I can, in that I think... It's important that people know that we come in here prepared for who you are as a human being in the best way we can, but we're not. We don't come with a, we're going to talk about these five things. 
And I tried that in the very beginning, 70 podcasts ago. <laughs> and I, I just think that was the worst thing you can do to come out with a good podcast is to come with an agenda that only, you know, yeah, right. I can't meet somebody else's agenda and conversation. And I just believe there's something bigger at work when we follow. Think, think about what you miss. When yeah. you, I'm, I'm so sorry to uh, go back to the, so good, I had a really good morning group yesterday here. Uh, <laughs> but when I have all the control Mm-hmm. That one, the audacity that I know what we what three people should be doing in an afternoon and talking about. If I were to hold on to that and not let go of it, all the things that I would miss out on and we would miss out on. It's control is a an issue. It's an issue, and that's what it's an issue for me clearly. And that's what to go back to the whole an agenda at least. I don't care what's in between point A and B, but what is point A and B? And we do care what's in between. We do. I live there. (laughs) (laughs) So the reality is that you do live in the in-between, and that comes with the gift of being able to write a book that's about the in-between. And Want and Plenty is about the in-between. It is. And I'm a fan. I think it's a really gentle, non-demanding opportunity to look at genuine Christianity. And there's no agenda in the book. So it's interesting that you picked up on that word because what I picked up on is that you get to the end and there was no agenda that it was supposed to make me something or make me believe something. It was just, here's a little bit of my journey if you'd like to look in. That's such a four thing to do Mm. because being genuine is the thing, right? Oh, yeah. It's the thing. Mm -hmm. What I would like to hear y'all talk about and I'm not as well versed or as cultured as you both are, but you are a narrative style teacher and speaker. And do you only do narrative style therapy or is that like usually therapists have, I practice the, I can offer these things. Is that on that list or is that your specialty? And I just want to hear you all talk about the the pros of narrative style. Go. I would say it's funny. When I fill out my little profile for psychology today, uh, you do have to choose a bunch of uh, different therapies and theories that you use. And I hate that question. I hate it. Don't box me in. Don't tell me that I have to click off on these little Things. Eclectic is one of the options. That was like the one I highlighted. <laughs> that would be me. Give it to me. I mean, that, that would be it. you, not that me. Would be me. Yeah. That, yeah. Um, so I think, you know, narrative therapy is part of what I do. Um, I do see everything through the lens of story. But I think it's it's a melting pot of a bunch of different ways that I approach uh, people. But the reality is when somebody comes into my office, I'm just sitting with them 
and trying to get to know them and get to know their story in the context of the grander narrative that I think that we're all living in um, and trying to discover and unearth um, where they're stuck, where they feel paralyzed, uh, how we can find some movement and some hope right where they are. I um, want to talk about one more quote from the book in relationship to that. Yeah. And that is, you said, the plans we carefully curate are not always what we might need or even most desire. And my response to that was that when you are in below average space in your number, that or excess in your number keeps you from knowing what your desires are. Mm -hmm. And I wonder how many people come to therapy because they no longer know what they desire. Yeah. I think most people don't know what they want. They know that they want and that they're longing for more. Right. They don't like the way they feel. And they're saying, fix me. Give me a formula. Give me the quick fix. Give me the pill. Give me the um, book. Give me the podcast. <laughs> um, and then I'll be out of here. Yeah. Like, can we do this in three sessions? And I have just not found that to be helpful. It's interesting, isn't it, that so many people are looking for quick answers and a quick fix to the complexity of living life just inside themselves and then the complexity of living life with other people. And it's always, and I think we're going to see this very differently too, when you listen to the stories that people tell, They're always moving forward. The story's always about moving forward. It's not about being here. It's not about taking a side trip. It's about how do I get there? Mm -hmm. And so to talk about the fact that what you've curated that there is about may not even be it. Like your goals that you have for yourself or your people. And I... Spent a lot of time thinking that my age was what kept me from being able to get through that process more quickly. And I actually, this sounds terribly arrogant, but I actually think it's the wisdom that I have about knowing that it's not a quick journey. And that it's probably not going to take me where I think it is. Yeah. When it's that element of control again, and, yeah. and us thinking that we know best, and there is an arrogance and a pride behind that. Um, we forget that like if we have a creator that holds us in his hand and things start to go awry, we think that we're slipping through his hand when the truth is he has, and I talk about this a little bit, um, that he has the aerial view and he can see further down the road than we can. Um, what we see is what we have these blinders on and we see what's right in front of us, uh, maybe just a little bit ahead of what we hope might happen, but we don't know, you know, I don't know what's going to happen when I walk out the door today. Right. Um, and that's scary at first glance, but it's actually very freeing and brings great peace into my life to know that this is not all up to me. I want to talk about disappointment for a minute Mm -hmm. based on that. So Joel, as a seven, when you know where you're going, how much disappointment do you experience? I don't experience a lot of disappointment. Because as long as I'm in the know, I'm okay with the plan changing. 
or and not in a uh, bad characteristic of a human kind of way. I'm okay with giving up. You know, if we're going to the top of the mountain and it doesn't work, we tried. I'm okay with the path splitting off right. and splitting off right. and splitting off. Um, Is that, do you think, because as a seven, you always keep your options open? Like you're practiced at that. It, it's like you, you always, you, you're going to go do this, but you've got options to do this, this, and this if this doesn't work out. And that's how you see life from the time you were a little boy. So do you think that's why disappointment isn't ever present when things don't work out? Yes, except for I've got to retract a little bit. I do get disappointed when things sh- should, in air quotes, have worked out, and then they didn't. When I have expectations of other people, which is, we all know, resentment waiting to happen. Right. Mm-hmm. Then that resentment's coming. And that, that's where I get disappointed. Well, I'll leave here today and analyze everything we talked about and wish that, man, I, I wish I had remembered that. I wish that, you know, we could have had another hour or, you know, and so it will be past. It'll be everything that just happened. And I'll be thinking about it for the next few days. And it's not that I will have wanted things to ultimately be different yep. because I really do believe that whatever happens in here is supposed to happen. Sure. Yeah. It is a little bit of this, like being hard on myself and disappointment in myself um, that maybe I could have made, made something be a little bit different. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and again, it's just that, that longing for more, right? Like it could have been better or like, and I'll, um, I'll replay it in my head. Mm-hmm. Oh man. If this had happened this way, that would have been pretty great. And then move on, but it won't be uh, the longing that you're talking about. Right. Yeah, the story that I'll be walking away with is relational. Mm-hmm. Like, man, I like her. That was good. Mm-hmm. Or I really like it that Joel contributed the things he did today because they were helpful. Or, yeah. it, you know, it'll be all of that. And so all of this is for me to say, even if we come together with hope, for the same event, we're actually all still wanting different things. I think when we insert ourselves too quickly in other people's stories, mm-hmm. we, that's being disrespectful in that we don't know what they want. So how do you manage that as a therapist yeah. who's Enneagram-wise, mm-hmm. who believes in something bigger than you, mm-hmm. who uses story as the basis yeah. for how things are going to unfold in a better, more healthy way going forward. Well, I think we have to be invited in. Interesting. So, so if we use the mantras of show up, pay attention, tell the truth, don't get attached to the results. Would you add when you're invited in, show up, pay attention, tell the truth. That's, that's something. And I don't think that's black and white because there are times when you see people in front of you, that don't know what they want mm-hmm. or desire. Mm-hmm. So they can't, they don't know to invite you in. And you do have to be discerning in those moments. Um, but I think as a rule of thumb, we want, we want to be able to earn the right. We say this a lot in young life, earn the right to be heard. And I, I'm not going to try to be heard if I'm not desired to mm-hmm. be heard. Mm-hmm. So I've got to know the person sitting in front of me. And hopefully through that connection, there will be an invitation. Now, when the invitation happens, and I've had this happen in my life, 
a lot. And then I do speak in, it gets really messy. Oh, yeah. Costly. Costly. How important is story in relationship building for each of you? Like, Joel, do you need or desire to know somebody's story before you begin to do things with them relationally? Are you? I don't think so. I'm confident the answer is no. Let's see where we're going. And then maybe I'll want to hear about your past, but I don't, I don't need your past to, to kick off this journey. That sounds awful. If you come up talking story to me, you're talking to the wrong person. It doesn't sound awful. It sounds seven. Yeah. You're able to just, I'm thinking I got an image of like Frisbee golf because my husband loves to do that. If some guys were walking by, he would grab them and sweep them up in this beautiful game for the next four hours. I would be hesitant about who those guys are. And I would need to have some interaction relationally. And once I know a little bit about who they are, yeah, let's go do it. See, that goes back to what we talked about. You're free to change your mind. You don't need the, you can bail on those guys at any point. Or not play frisbee golf with them again. I don't think I could bail. I bail. Why, why would you not bail? I think because if if I've invited them into whatever I'm doing, I then feel a, I don't want to say obligation, like a um, responsibility to see it through with them. You might be obligated if you first made them share their stories. <laughs> right. If, if they had to do story time first to play. So there's some detachment golf. there yeah. because yeah, I would, I would feel like I would know them mm-hmm. and then there would be, and then I, I would know how I could potentially hurt them by me ending something too soon. And I think this goes to that fours want deeper everything. Yes. And Oh, this brings up, we were at a conference last week with 6,000 people and probably knew hundreds of them. So every five minutes, I was bumping into somebody I knew that I had a touch point with, but I wanted to catch up. I mean, not necessarily in that moment, but I, I wanted at least a minute or two conversation. Ben was like halfway down the hallway trying to get to the buffet because he had a goal in mind of where we were going. And then he was getting frustrated with me because he's is like, lunchtime. there we she talk, goes again. We talked about this. Yeah. This is lunchtime. He's like, you don't need to know about, you know, their 10 year old who needs to go to therapy right now. Mm-hmm. Let's go eat. <laughs> There are points where we're just different. And there is no, oh, but life would be so great if you did it this way. Some points it's just, I would do this, and the other person says, I wouldn't, and that's okay. But what about when you do make it a thing that you're so different? From one another? Um, Commonality can't be found, or? Like... My way's the way. Here's what I think about that uh, for you and me. I, you know, work with Laura and Joel, and they are a three and a seven. And again, I assigned some disconnects to age, and that was the wrong understanding of what was happening. Um, Someone said to me, aggressive numbers think faster or process information faster. But withdrawing numbers and dependent numbers process feelings faster. And I never 
ever would have thought about processing feelings. And I have come to the understanding in the last five days, be interested to hear what you both think, that when you process thinking faster, you're less likely to be good at processing feelings. And when you process feelings faster, you're less likely to be able to think. If you bring it down to just an, a, an individual conversation, I think, Meredith, in the, line, in the journey down the hall on the way to the buffet, you are able to have an encounter with somebody that doesn't last longer than two minutes and process those feelings. And Ben wouldn't be able to. And so Ben avoids that to go to the next thing. Do you do that? For work, I talk to people at workshops. Love it, by the way. Can't wait. Uh, yeah, looking, <laughs> forward. looking forward to it. And I don't feel as though I need to process Mary in Idaho's feelings. She can come and share them, and I will gl gladly listen. Uh huh. And. Hopefully, share a resource that you can find at lifeinthetrinityministry.com. That fixes it. If that's what you want. I right. Know. You right. came to me. I, <laughs> so, but I don't, I don't feel a need to process it. I am working on better processing my own feelings instead of discarding them. And better acknowledging the people who are in my intimate life their feelings that they're their feelings see that's where you're a two the question's a two question i don't i don't need to golly and it came yeah. from me imagine that but i don't need to process your feelings yeah you process your feelings <clears throat> i can't get past the feelings if i see the feelings like you were talking about that stack of feelings mm -hmm. i i cannot see around them man sorry <laughs> I I, you gonna, don't need to say sorry he really tried on that one, though, right? That was very kind. Yeah. I'm sorry. I'm sorry. I feel bad for you. All the things, all the great stuff on the other side of that stack right. that you don't... And I need both, you. which I, I do. I need both. And I think Ben brings both both to me. He, bring, he brings the good things on the other sides of the feelings. But I can get stuck right there in the feelings, if it's mine or other people's. And he can get stuck in thinking and not feeling. Yeah. When you ask... What about when people are like, it's my way, like, yeah. I've got this right. Yeah. I like the teaching about if you most of the time think that it's about somebody else, you could probably, you probably need to look at that it's about you. Right. And if most yes. of the time you think it's about you, you need to look at the idea that it might be about somebody else. I think that same principle so applies to I'm right. I get Set. my agenda, I get hooked on it, and then I and then I am right and it is my way. Yeah. And you and have a plan. You have a plan, a plan. for it. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And and I think when we when those of us who process thinking more slowly have an idea that doesn't have a plan around it. Yes. Right? And which it, is maddening, really. Yes, it is. <laughs> for everybody, it, it seems. For everybody involved. What's the most important message from and want in plenty? That we have what we need right here. If we can see it in the tension, 
it's very interesting because I'm doing a lot of work with liminality right now. And, you know, that's when you're on the threshold between where you were and where you're going. And for the three of us, I'm on the threshold and Meredith, you're where we were and Joel, you're where we're going. And I do think that the discomfort on the threshold is feeling like there's not enough. Like there's not enough right here for everything to be okay. I wonder if in your work, your narrative work, Mm -hmm. I wonder if you are mindful that when you're in a therapy session, are you content with how much of the story people share this week? I am. And what do you think that has to do with foreignness? And do you see that as problematic for aggressive numbers who are coming to you to get something fixed in three weeks? Yeah, I think that because I'm a slow processor, I can only take in probably so much. So it's helpful to me to get the bits and pieces um, and to be patient and know that more is coming. I can see how it could be problematic for the person sitting in front of me because they want the quick fix. But I would really challenge them and hope that they would trust me. I think that it's funny, you know, people say that quote about like God never gives us more than we can handle, Mm -hmm. which is. It's not been my experience. A lie, I think. Yeah, it's um, we there's so many things we can't handle. And so I think in a counseling session, sitting with someone uh, we only need to go as far that day as we need to. And sometimes I'll push a little bit, but usually I'm just letting things unfold in the time that I feel like it needs to um, and trusting that more will come as we go on the journey together. Um, sometimes people get impatient and we speak to that and we process that. Why are you feeling impatient? Why do you feel an urgency to get things moving quicker? But I think that healing really comes when we can hold that space um, and not rush through it. I think it's a difficult concept to talk about holding space. Mm-hmm. You know, we, it's trendy language. It is. But it's difficult to hold emptiness. Mm-hmm. So one of the reasons we really, Joe and I really insist on some kind of contemplative prayer or contemplative time Mm -hmm. where the goal is to be empty. Yeah. I think um, culturally we're in a keep it full all the time. Right. No reason to feel emptiness or lack or want. And um, I'm concerned piece of what's happening as a result of that is a lack of compassion Mm -hmm. and a lack of empathy. Mm -hmm. I am going to close, I think, with asking you to talk about one great story and the value of narrative tradition. I remember my kids walking outside a couple years ago. I was in the middle of writing this book, and there was, uh, like, frost all over the grass. And each one of them had a completely different reaction. 
So, you know, I've got one who was so excited and she already had it in her mouth before she even knew what it was just to test it out with all of her senses, her whole being. Um, I had one who was still standing beside me, patient, hesitant, cautious, wondering why was it cold enough to do that to the grass last night and what is that? Um, And then I had another one who was asking me a million questions, Um, you know, very inquisitive. And I got to see all of their little personalities coming out, you know, starting to wonder, hmm, wonder what their Enneagram numbers are. Um, But they were all looking at a common substance, something that was just there in front of them um, that was providing uh, an experience. But we were all experiencing it differently. And um, really the culmination of the metaphor I use in In One Plenty is about um, manna, Mm -hmm. which is the substance that falls from the sky back in Exodus with the Israelites. And it actually translates to mean, what is it? And there's so many things in this life that we don't understand what's going on and why it's it's shaken out the way that it is, Um, if that's loss, disappointment, uh, diagnosis, anxiety, depression, whatever it is. Um, And we're all asking through our own lens and our own perspective. Um, But if we start to come to terms with the reality that whatever is happening is God's provision, that He's going to bring some good out of the dark, then it changes everything. And it calms our whole being when we're able to um, recognize that and have a new lens and a new perspective. Yeah, Joe Beale and Richard Rohr say uh, constantly, Either God is in everything or God is in nothing. Mm. And that's a good example of that.